Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Fixed income investors are at an impasse. Historically low yields and massive open market purchases by global central banks have left investors scrambling for answers on how to navigate a quite difficult market. Demand for fixed income and a reduction in supply of higher quality instruments have forced investors to look beyond garden variety government and investment grade corporate bonds to the arenas of high yield debt and securitized credit. Given this activity, two key questions are quite relevant today. First, what fixed income bubbles exist today or are in the process of forming as a result of this monetary policy that's quite unprecedented and the low rates that we're dealing with? And secondly, what is the risk that these bubbles pose? Will they pop or do they create opportunity? Here with us today to talk about the risks and opportunities across the fixed income markets, including securitized credit, as well as investment grade and high yield corporate debt, is Jeff Katz. Jeff is a senior product specialist and managing director and an expert in securitized fixed income for TCW MetWest. He's had 25 years of experience in fixed income markets, including working on the agency mortgage desk at PIMCO. He was also a co-head of the structured asset desk at Western Asset Management, where he was responsible for their entire research operation. He's been at TCW, which manages over $220 billion, mainly in the fixed income arena, for about eight years now. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Tony, thank you and uh, Wilmington for having uh, both myself and TCW on your uh, on your call today. Thank you. It's our pleasure and we're excited to explore this fascinating and very important topic for investors. So Jeff, let's talk about to level set where we stood prior to the pandemic. And we also had a, a more minor shock in the oil market earlier this year that um, has had a, an important impact on overall financial markets and, and in fixed income. But even prior to those twin shocks, we were seeing leverage steadily increasing um, in the market, in the so-called bank loan market, um, and in other fixed income markets. So maybe because it's giving us a backdrop of leading into mid-February of this year, how you saw the overall landscape for fixed income. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, well, TCW, as a long-term fundamental value investor, we've historically driven our returns by uh, both being cycle-aware and also through the uh, the credit work that we do uh, or our issue selection. And so our view prior to the pandemic um, was that we had been coming out of a, an extended period of accommodation, unprecedented, uh, both domestically and globally. Uh, what that had resulted in was some pretty uh, over-levered credit markets, namely investment-grade uh, high yield uh, credit and the bank loan market, as you've mentioned. Um, in addition to that leverage, um, when you couple that with the pricing in the market, uh, we found there to be uh, not a lot of value, meaning that we saw some pretty substantial debt burdens on corporate balance sheets. When we speak of leverage, typically we're talking about uh, a company's debt burden relative to their earnings capacity or their ability to repay that debt. We were at or near historic levels pre-pandemic. And what has occurred post-pandemic has nothing, done nothing but to exacerbate that. And so we had been pulling back uh, the reins with respect to credit, thinking that there was too much leverage and it was priced inappropriately in markets. So when we had the downturn, when, when COVID hit, starting in, in late February and into March, the first thing that happened was 
there was a significant drying up of liquidity in the market. In other words, holders of these kinds of financial instruments, uh, different kinds of bonds, particularly bonds that were issued by more levered companies that, that had more risk associated with them, et cetera, there were a lot of people looking to sell those positions, looking for the exit, if you will. In order to maintain liquidity in the marketplace, the Fed, the U.S. Treasury, they all responded by providing liquidity using these so-called 13-3, which is, refers to a, a law that allows the Fed specifically to provide liquidity to markets. They, they use these, these powers that they had in order to go out and provide liquidity to expand their balance sheets to participate in these markets. And they've, in fact, continued to do so and their balance sheets are significantly larger and they've inject, injected all this liquidity into the system, which is to say they've gone out and they've purchased these, stock, the, these bonds that holders were concerned were too risky uh, they wanted to dump. And now that cash has gone into the system and the bonds, in many cases, sit on the balance sheet of, of the Fed. Can you give us some context around how big has the Fed balance sheet become? How much has it expanded? And what are some of the, the ways that you think about the significance and the consequences to investors of this, they have it right, unprecedented expansion of the Fed balance sheet, of the Fed participating in fixed income markets? What you speak of and what you speak to is, is, is termed quantitative easing. And it's actually critical in understanding and informing our decision as to where we are in the cycle. Um, quantitative easing can be a, a fairly complex uh, concept, but in, in its basic term, effectively what the Fed and central banks are doing is they're they're purchasing assets, as you mentioned, on their own balance sheet. Um, they're attempting to buy the quasi or risk-free assets, namely United States Treasury securities and U.S. agency mortgage-backed securities. And, and the intent of that is to um, take those assets, uh, for better or worse, off the market and put investors in a position where uh, they have to look to other parts of the market to add yield to their portfolio. Um, so the Fed, their balance sheet, um, prior to the last financial crisis, which we had in 2007, the housing crisis or great financial crisis, um, the Fed's balance sheet was about $800 billion in size. Um, in to the prior crisis, the great financial crisis, um, they had expanded their balance sheet up to about $4.5 trillion. Um, that is unprecedented. Um, and that was, again, through acquiring treasury securities uh, and, and uh, agency mortgage-backed securities. Um, they were buying about 45, um, 45 billion treasuries and about 40 billion agency mortgages a month. Post-COVID, or with the response to COVID, they've effectively introduced what we term as QE infinity, meaning they were going to respond with as much liquidity as they needed to to keep the system uh, moving forward. And so now we are actually closer to $7 trillion in the forecaster to get us to $10 trillion. To put in perspective, they are actually now buying about $80 billion a month in treasuries and about $40 billion net in agency mortgages. That number was actually uh, in early March or late March and early April, $40 billion a day in agency mortgages. And so they've since curtailed that some, but it was a, a, a response the, the likes of which we've never seen in financial markets. And, and it certainly has a very distorting impact on markets. Namely, it reduces rates, as you'd mentioned. Um, it reduces volatility, and it puts us as investors in a position where we have to look to other markets um, to find yield, namely the credit markets, investment grade, high yield, bank loan markets, and the securitized markets. And so it effectively pushes investors out the risk continuum to find yield in markets. So when you talk about it pushing rates down, just to make sure we're bringing all of our listeners along with us, 
essentially what it's doing is it's creating a, a lot more demand. It's an artificial demand because it's a source of demand that's really indifferent to price. There's not really trying to make money per se. The Fed is really just trying to keep the markets um, going, but it's creating all this demand. So issuers are able to issue bonds at lower rates because effectively there's more incremental demand for, for those bonds. And in fact, this time around, they're not just buying treasuries and agencies and mortgage securities, et cetera. They're actually buying some corporate debt as well. Is that all pretty much accurate? Correct. Yes, they've, they've expanded the playbook um, into the corporate credit arena and continue to provide liquidity, again, the likes of, of which we've, we've never seen in financial markets. And in a way, it sort of creates a snowball effect, as I understand it, because if I'm a company and I see that rates have been pushed so low because of this artificial buyer in the marketplace and I want to finance myself, it may make a lot more sense for me to issue more credit, more bonds, further levering my balance sheet, but essentially accessing the capital markets at a very cheap cost because rates are so low. Correct? Correct. I mean, think uh, think of if you were a CEO or a CFO or a CIO um, and you were able to, to borrow um, if you're an investment grade uh, company, so triple B and, and higher, so triple A down to triple B, given how low rates are due to QE and given how compressed spreads are because investors have to seek yield elsewhere, you can effectively issue 10-year debt in the investment grade corporate credit market um, inside 2%. And so to your point, um, it's hard to blame the CEOs, CIOs, CFOs for issuing debt. Um, we as investors, though, however, are unsecured creditors. And so when we do our credit work and we have to evaluate these corporations, we A, recognize the, 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 the expansion of the debt or the numerator in that leverage ratio. Um, one of the things when we do our homework, though, that we've, we've taken notice of is many of those proceeds have done things that are far more equity friendly and less debt holder friendly, meaning they've uh, used those proceeds for mergers and acquisitions, uh, share buybacks, dividend increases, things that are um, really drive compensation to many of the individuals who are doing that borrowing um, and not doing things like capital expenditures, R&D, that tend to be longer focused and lead to bigger productivity gains, which ultimately lead to wage inflation. And so, um, yes, I, it's hard to fault them for issuing debt. Um, it does put us in a precarious situation as, as creditors uh, in that we have to now gauge their ability to pay that uh, debt off uh, in a more challenging environment. Because these bonds tend to be longer-term bonds in many cases, particularly since the entire yield curve is so low now. These CEOs and CIOs of these, of these or CFOs of these companies are looking to lock in their low borrowing costs for many years into the future. So it's important when a, an investor buys a bond, they understand what the ability of that company to pay the bond back is not just today or over a short period of time with respect to the interest payment or the coupon, but ultimately to pay the principal back many, many years, possibly decades in the future. Absolutely. And, and that's critical to what we do. And to your point, um, with rates as low as they are and the, the uh, treasury curve and credit curves as flat and low as they are, it does make sense for them to term out their debt as long as they can. And so when we uh, evaluate that, one of the things we have to look at is our ability as investors to protect ourselves. And so, you know, the bank loan market is a really good example of that. Um, we've seen leverage in that market increase to over six times. And so historically, that's usually around four times. But in the event that one of these companies uh, does uh, face a solvency issue, uh, one of our remedies is really through bond covenants. And so there are, there are bylaws that are written into these indentures and deals that restrict the ability of issuers to do certain things to protect ourselves as, as investors. 
Historically, in the bank loan market, those bond covenants are what we would call covenant light, which refers to very weak debt covenants, has typically been very low, meaning we have very strong uh, governance in many deals. Usually, that's about 10% of the universe is, is covenant light. We've actually seen issuance because, as you spoke before, it's very much been an issuer's market. Those numbers are close to 70 to 80%. So we as investors have far less ability to protect ourselves, which ultimately, one, the leverage uh, lead to a higher propensity of default, but then two, the lack of covenants would lead to lower recovery. So not only would you have a, a higher probability of default, but also a lower recovery. So um, it makes it challenging, and especially when markets are not pricing that in, to have a lot of conviction in those parts of the market. And we talk about four or six times leverage. Uh, you're talking about four or six times the revenue or the profits of the company? Exactly. So when I speak to leverage, I'm talking about, it, you know, in its simplest term, a, kind of a mathematical equation of you know, debt as your numerator and your earnings capacity as your denominator. And so pre-COVID, we were at stretch levels or historic levels of debt relative to the, the earnings capacity of corporations to repay that debt. Two things we've seen happen since COVID is one, We've had uh, just shy of $2 trillion of investment-grade corporate debt issued, so that numerator has gone up. And obviously, given COVID, um, with shelter-in-place and the pandemic, earnings capacities for, for large chunks or majority of the economy have come down. And so um, you've exacerbated that leverage from both the numerator and the denominator. And when we talk about bank debt, you're basically talking about, as opposed to bonds, which are essentially instruments that are publicly traded that are issued into the market, you're talking about borrowings that originate with a bank that is essentially making a loan to a company and they're taking back this piece of paper called a bank loan, but then they're going off and selling it out into the marketplace and sometimes even having it securitized, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but that's what we talk about when we mean the bank loan market. So I could be, Jeff, a, a pension that has a certain, a certain schedule of liabilities that I expect that I need to fund because I'm going to be paying out money to my um, retirees, or I could be an educational institution where I know I need to have a certain amount of money off of my endowment um, that needs to be there for sure in order to pay for the expenses of the university or any other such type of investor that is looking for a regular income. In this environment, in order to find the income, in many cases, I have no choice but to buy these bonds or these these loans, essentially, that you're talking about that may have more risk associated with them, um, less protections in terms of these covenants that you've described, because those are the ones that have the higher yield or the higher return, which I absolutely need in order to run my business or my 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 institution. Um, and that's why the demand is still there. Is that pretty much accurate? That's exactly right. That's the the that's the uh, the unintended consequences of the policies that are in place. And so, as investors, as you mentioned. Uh, you have forward liabilities and you have you know returns that you have to generate to be able to meet those liabilities. And, and given the purchasing or, or effectively taking the risk-free assets out of the market, you've seen a compression of, of yield compensation as people have flocked to other riskier parts of the market that they uh, would not historically have gone to, to to achieve those types of returns. So there's one part of this story that's not quite intuitive that I, I wish, I'm hoping you can explain for us, Jeff, which is this bubble, which is a bubble of an excess of fixed income that exists in the market, it's also reflected in the very low rates that we're seeing. That was all the artifact of the expansion of the balance sheet on the part of the Fed. The Fed wanted to create liquidity in the market so that the bond market wouldn't fall apart, people could still issue debt, et cetera. 
Did the Fed go too far in creating too much liquidity and allowing this bubble to, to exist? But then at the same time, Jeff, my second question is going to be, why is it really a problem? Because if the Fed created the bubble by running in and buying all these bonds, I would imagine the Fed is going to be pretty responsible and they're not going to just go off and sell all the bonds all at once to create a, a financial crisis, if you will. The Fed is going to continue to hold those bonds for a long time. So if the Fed just continues to hold on to these bonds, has a very expanded balance sheet, why are we so worried about buying these lower quality bonds? The Fed is just going to continue to hold them and support the market. Is there really a problem? That's a great question. Uh, and the Fed in, in, in holding these assets are not marked to market. So to your point, they can they can have staying power in terms of holding those assets. Um, I think what they've done is address the liquidity situation. Uh, what they've done is not address the solvency situation, and they potentially have forestalled it some. However, there are a number or, or, or a long list of companies that, uh, in our purview, are what we would call zombie companies or companies that outside of this liquidity would not be operating. And given the fundamentals, you know, the job loss and the paradigm shifts we've seen in the economy, um, we think we'll have a very hard time operating outside of uh, the accommodation that we've seen. And so as the accommodation recedes over time, uh, many of these companies that have kind of been uh, thrown a lifeline uh, will ultimately default. And so to, uh, to put some perspective around that, we've seen about $90 billion in companies file bankruptcy this year. Uh, the default rate um, even with all of this liquidity we've seen is gone from about one to two percent to six to seven percent. Uh, and I would argue that that number would be substantially higher uh, without the accommodation. But ultimately, we think that number will continue to grow as that liquidity recedes. And I think the, the more pertinent issue is the fact that there are many companies and industries that uh, are still around that in all likelihood will not be around and, and should not uh, be around today, given they are effectively not generating profits. So in other words, just because the Fed owns lots of government bonds and mortgage bonds and some bonds of very high quality companies, the systemic impact has been much broader than that. And many of the issuers of this debt are not nearly as strong and uh, as sure of their future, if you will, as the kind of stuff that the Fed owns. And because this broad systemic impact, we can't really rely on the Fed to act as a backstop, if you will, for the owners of those kinds of, of bonds that are the different kinds of bonds that what the Fed is typically buying. Exactly. And, and, and ultimately what happens and uh, is, is the longer you extend this process, uh, typically the ultimate uh, outcome um, tends to be more magnified. And so the risk is that we continue to build those bubbles that you speak of uh, and they continue to grow. And then when we ultimately do have a, an exogenous shock, um, as we did in, in, in March, even with the balance sheet at four and a half trillion from 800 billion, there still is downside in the markets. And, and ultimately, you're inflating more bubbles as you continue on with this process. And the ultimate resolution can be, can be more harsh. So what's an investor to do today in the sense that even if we go back to this year, we look at March, for example, where we saw significant drops in the equity markets. And we saw the broad aggregate bond index, which sometimes we call the, the, the AG or the AGG. The equity market was down significantly, double digits, but even that bond index was down 7 8% or so. Do you think that you know now, from a, a very real perspective, bonds are even less attractive because rates are even lower, which means that they can only go up. And when bond rates go up, typically bond values deteriorate since there are new bonds being issued with higher interest rates and the compensation in terms of the actual 
interest rate itself is so low in today's environment, is it worth buying bonds at all? How should investors think through buying bonds? And many of our listeners buy municipal bonds, which have the same dynamics, and they're seeing lots of new paper come to market at lower rates, et cetera. So that's just another instance of the general conversation. But what are, what are investors to do in this environment? That's a great, great question, Tony. And I think uh, it, it brings to the forefront or shines light on, on a couple things. Um, one, the importance of active management. Um, you know, TCW, we are an active manager. You know, you point to low yields in, in, in the market, and one would uh, typically correlate that with low returns. And, and you mentioned some of the challenges that the market had in March. Um, our funds are actually up close to eight percent this year, um, which is which is remarkable given the the, uh, the amount of volatility that we've seen. Um, I think what that speaks to is our ability to be cycle aware, um, which speaks to active management. Um, understanding when valuations get full relative to the fundamentals, when to add risk and when to take risk off. Um, I had mentioned uh, our, our assessment pre-COVID. Um, we had been taking risk off the table for the better part of the last two years. What we've been doing um, is shortening up our sensitivities to market volatility, um, going up in capital structures to, to higher quality securities that, that um, may not give you as much compensation, but you're really uh, sacrificing uh, pretty de minimis returns in terms of yield, given how how um, how flat uh, credit curves are, but you are protecting yourself to the downside. And so, um, we were building liquidity in portfolios through higher quality assets. We were shortening spread durations, which uh, again um, immunizes you some when you have a volatility event, um, and it does put you in a position when you do get an exogenous shock that you can actually play offense, which is what we at TCW did. Um, you know, you think about investment grade corporate credit. Pre-pandemic, um, the spread or the compensation above treasuries that you were getting um, at, on average for investment-grade companies was about 95 basis points or inside a percent. Post-pandemic, those same corporations were trading closer to 350. So you had more than a tripling of, of the compensation. And that is when we became very active in purchasing those assets. We were arguably one of the bigger liquidity providers given the liquidity, liquidity we had built into portfolios. Uh, and we were able to, to, to be a large presence in the market at that point in time. We have since seen a lot of those spreads remediate um, as, again, a value manager and a cycle aware manager. We've continued to take profits from many of those purchases at tighter spreads. Um, and so I think it, it, it speaks to um, active management and being very cycle aware. So it really comes down to selectivity and timing, in a sense, buying the right bonds, the bonds that are sound in terms of the issuer's ability to pay uh, over the cycle of the bond and the timing from a macro standpoint, is this the right time to be playing in that that particular market? Just to add on to that, one of the things we did when we were adding risk is we were adding high quality risk. And so when we did get that dislocation, we didn't have to go into the high yield market or the bank loan market. We were actually buying investment grade, high quality, um, Tad Ravel, our CIO would say, fortress-like balance sheets or, or, or what we would call bendable companies, companies that don't uh, face the, the, the potential of, of, of um, permanent impairment at breakable levels. And so we were able to buy uh, you know, the Disneys, the Intels of the world um, at very attractive levels, levels that were on par with where high yield traded pre-pandemic. Um, and so we didn't have to, to um, compromise in terms of the quality we were buying. We were just getting compensated significantly more um, for those same companies. I often use the term, Jeff, um, margin of safety as an investment concept. And that concept typically comes up more on the equity side than on the fixed income side. But I think it applies equally on the fixed income side where you can think of stress testing a bond or, or a company's balance sheet. And the question being, even if there is that stress event, is there still enough margin 
in their income stream and their other obligations to continue to pay off um, the piece of paper that you're buying. Exactly. And so, again, the, the benefit of, of being liquid um, when there wasn't much value in the market was the ability to play offense in a very high quality way. So, Jeff, there's one more area that I wanted to discuss with you quickly, which I know is an area that you've spent a lot of your career in. And it's an area that's a bit of an alphabet soup. And it's a quite confusing area for most of us, which is the securitized credit area. And the reason I, I want to delve a bit into this is because when we think about the last crisis that we had, much of it emanated from the securitized debt arena where there were bonds that were essentially put into vehicles, trusts. So they were securitized. They, they were trust instruments issued and each instrument represented a right against the bonds that were in that trust. Um, and somehow, even though the bonds in the trust seemed to be of reasonable credit, credit worthiness, the trust certificates that represented an interest in these trusts which themselves also seemed to somehow initially be of reasonable credit worthiness, ended up being worth very little. And then you had collapses of companies like a Bear Stearns and a Lehman, and you had systemic problems in the financial system. And so this whole idea of securitized credit um, became a real problem in the overall ecosystem of how the financial markets work. When you look at this crisis that we're having, and you're seeing the big bubble that we've just described and identified within the bond market, what, if any, role is the securitized debt space playing in this whole phenomenon? And could you maybe just juxtapose that to what happened to the last cycle? Sure. As you point out, the epicenter of the last bout of volatility, the great financial crisis, was, was centered in the housing market. The subprime mortgage universe, the Alte mortgage universe, securitized, really what you're doing is you, uh, unlike corporate credit, where you have an unsecured uh, pledge of a corporation to repay their obligation, here you have a pool of assets. And so in, in the, the mortgage market, it's it's the residential housing market. In the commercial mortgage-backed securities market, you have commercial properties, which collateralize uh, the liability stream that you've purchased. And so last time, the, the leverage, uh, if you will, was centered in the housing market. We had borrowers who could borrow up to 125% of their home. Um, you had levered vehicles, namely CDOs, collateralized debt obligations that owned those liabilities. So there was leverage throughout the system. Um, I would argue this time that the leverage um, is centered in the corporate credit market, but there are other parts of the securitized market which have seen some asset inflation, um, which could pose some risks, uh, especially given that the change in the economy due to COVID. And I would argue that those are away from the housing market more so. This time around, they're going to be centered more likely in the subordinate parts of the commercial mortgage-backed market, given uh, the work-from-home phenomenon that's obviously going to lead to demand for office space. Retail obviously has had a paradigm shift to the internet and lodging uh, is going to be very challenged just given uh, the pandemic and the challenges that are faced with travel. In addition to the subordinate parts of the commercial mortgage-backed market, I believe the CLO market in it, the subordinate parts. And so there are, there are bonds that support senior bonds. When I, when I speak of subordinate, the CLO market or collateralized loan obligation market is technology similar to the CDO market. Um, in terms of its structure. However, the collateral is actually the bank loans that we spoke to before, which have very high leverage and have very weak bond covenants. And so I would, I would argue that those are probably two of the parts of the securitized market that pose some of the bigger risks. But ultimately, when those do, for lack of a better term, burst or, or, or uh, reflect the fundamentals that we believe will play out, there potentially could be opportunities there down the road. That, that first area you were talking about, which would involve company debt, particularly associated with commercial real estate, et cetera, 
is the one that's called commercial mortgage-backed securities, which is a term that I mention only because, um, well, it's jargon in the industry. It, that's a term that you hear quite frequently. So, Jeff, one last question. Do you think that when there is a piercing of the bubble, specifically with respect to those securitized arenas, the CLO space, which has a lot of that bank loan product in it, or the CMBS space, which has a lot of the debt that's associated with uh, office real estate um, and other kinds of commercial real estate, commercial mortgages. Do you think that those risks are big enough that it could imperil the whole financial system the way that we saw those dynamics play out in the last cycle? Or do you think it's a, that, that particular area, the bubble is on a smaller order of magnitude than it was with the whole housing market that we experienced a decade ago? From a relative size, they're, they're smaller markets, but in aggregate, they, they get to roughly uh, a comparable size in terms of securitization. However, in the event that there's a, a, a quote, piercing of the bubble in those parts of the market, just given what the collateral is for CLOs, that, that uh, uh, implicitly implies that we're having issues in the corporate credit market, which is a very large market. So I would argue that if you were having issues in those two markets, there's a pretty high likelihood or correlation that you would be having um, some, some substantial issues in the credit markets, which you know would lead to a, a pretty challenging environment for the economy and most likely a pretty bold response from uh, both fiscal and monetary um, sides of the equation. However, you know the Fed, given how low rates are and how much they've expanded their balance sheet, they've I don't want to say they've run out of bullets, but they've certainly reduced the ability to respond, uh, which is why we are now speaking of fiscal response uh, in a second round of fiscal response. So again, this speaks to uh, the, the, the unintended consequences of continuing to provide that liquidity is at some point you run out of bullets um, and at some point the excesses come to be pierced. Right. Well, hopefully, hopefully these um, um, the bonds that are in the, the CLO and the CMBS area will sort of work their way out of the system, if you will, more gradually than through a um, more cataclysmic event. Jeff, we could go on and on. This is a fascinating topic, but you've provided us with, I think, not just a great fundamental understanding of the space, but also a really more sophisticated picture of where we are today. Let me try to, as I always do, summarize what I think are the three key takeaways from our conversation today. First is that large-scale economic buyers, and here we're talking mainly about central banks uh, and the Fed in the U.S. in particular, uh, it would be the most prominent, have had a big distortive impact on fixed income markets. They own tremendous a tremendous portion of all debt issued, that has driven interest rates lower and has actually induced companies to issue even more debt because debt is, is so cheap right now and is a preferred way to finance um, themselves. At the same time, many of the issuers of the debt have been able to issue that debt with lower quality terms or covenants such that the end holder of the debt, oftentimes it's not the bank that issued the debt, um, but it is... Uh, somebody else further down the, the stream of ownership, if you will, owns a piece of paper that is pretty risky because if the company is not a solid company, or really sort of an A-type a company, at the end of the day, uh, when that company uh, at some point in the future is unable to pay its coupon and, uh, and certainly the capital as well, you have defaults and, and then you have losses accrue. So a lot of risk associated with the fixed income market today as a result of the fact that the, the central banks have tried to support the markets through liquidity 
but not, as you say, Jeff, necessarily dealing with the solvency of the companies um, from an operating income standpoint. The second takeaway is that notwithstanding the risks that are present in the space, there are great opportunities or certainly sufficient opportunities, maybe not great, but sufficient opportunities to deploy capital into the fixed income space. Uh, it has to do a lot with selectivity and timing, as you've talked about uh, how you've negotiated uh, quite well um, for TCW, the overall environment. Uh, and at Wilmington Trust, many of our listeners are, of course, municipal bond buyers. Um, municipals have been a very interesting asset class this year because uh, they typically provide yields that are lower than comparable credit quality taxables. But this year, for most of the year, they've actually provided higher yields um, due to all kinds of distortive effects in the marketplace. And we practice every day, essentially, credit underwriting. And we underwrite every bond we buy. We look at every credit. And if we do a good job there, then those bonds should ultimately be money good, um, even as the values fluctuate around. So when the bond hits maturity, um, the principal is paid off. So notwithstanding these bubbles and distortions through expert investing, we think that there is opportunity to deploy capital into the fixed income markets. And the third takeaway would be specifically in the securitized arena. It's an area that was very close to the outset or the origin, if you will, of the great financial crisis. Here, we think we see it more as a, a byproduct, if you will, of the overall crisis that we're experiencing today that's more a function of COVID and the reaction from the central banks. But it nonetheless has created some significant risks for owners of the kinds of paper that is being issued that's called CLOs, where you have bank loans or CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities. And we'll have to keep a very close eye going forward on as much of that paper ends up being not necessarily worthless, but certainly not worth the par that it was issued at. We'll have to keep a very close eye to see what kind of destabilizing effects that has across um, the overall financial markets and, and economy. With that, Jeff, I want to thank you again so much for your terrific insights and for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. 
Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or m Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. m Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, m Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, m Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of m Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, m Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through m Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by m Bank, member FDIC. 2021 m Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. <laughs>